It's November 15th, 2021, and this is the Watson Weekly, your essential e-commerce digest. Today on our show, Saks e-commerce split sounds worse every day. What makes it so bad? Square stakes its claim on the future of currency and payments. What's the status of live streaming in the United States? American Eagle Outfitters continue to acquire logistics capabilities. Should other retailers be paying attention? And finally, the Investor Minute, which contains five items this week from the world of venture capital, acquisitions, and IPOs. But first, in our shopping cart full of news. Saks e-commerce split sounds worse every day. What makes it so bad? In a recent interview with Women's Wear Daily, Saks CEO Mark Metric conducted an interview that, in my opinion, he put out as a way to justify and trumpet the company's approach. However, it came across primarily as an example of what not to do. The interview starts out innocuous enough. Becoming the consumer destination for all things luxury is the goal. Okay, this makes sense. Key to the transaction is a $500 million investment in the digital business by Insight Partners. But where does this lead the stores fleet? Sounds like off on its own. The CEO mentioned that for years, it was an organization that needed to choose between digital and physical instead of investing in both. I left with the impression that stores won't get much investment going forward. Other companies have found a different path, even large companies. Target being best known example that made stores a centerpiece of its digital strategy. The worst part of the interview came very simply, and it's best if I quote for you in, this, in the entirety, because otherwise you think I'm making this up. Quote, Metrics said that more than 300 operating service agreements are in place to make sure that the consumer is having an omni-channel experience. We split for purposes of our investment and our focus and our strategy, but we're holding the omni-channel experience together for the consumer through these operating service agreements to make sure that the ecosystem of Saks Fifth Avenue remains omni-channel, end quote. To which I say, huh? That is the biggest pile of corporate BS wrapped in a thank you to a new investor that I've ever seen. 300 operating service agreements? Sounds like a million dollars of the $500 million was spent in legal fees just negotiating those. How many KPIs do you need to track in those 300 operating service agreements? How do employees keep up with changes in those agreements? What are the penalties for violating those agreements? The fact that Metric can even repeat this with a straight face tells you everything you need to know about how this will end up. Mark wants to play like he is a CEO of a tech company. He's essentially admitting that these stores won't be revamped. Basically, Saks is going back to the bad old days of single-channeled, siloed decision-making. Listeners might say, Rick, why are you covering this again? Well, this trend is not going away. In fact, if anything, this disease will spread internationally into the UK and Europe as well based on what I'm reading. Worse, the new money invested will make it seem like a good idea in the short term. In fact, you will likely see Saks e-commerce accelerate like never before as all that new capital goes to work. The big reminder here is, know who your investors are. Do you have the right ones for your journey? It's more critical than you think. Jeff Bezos in his first letter to shareholders was a masterclass in managing and attracting the right investors. From the very beginning, he said, he would be misunderstood and that Amazon might never make money, but that the company would relentlessly focus on customers. Bezos said, quote, investing with me isn't for everyone. What Saks is doing here instead is effectively cutting loose its stores, though Metric may not even realize it yet, which represents the key to Saks' e-commerce profitability going forward. What happens when that day arrives? 
Our second story. Square stakes its claim on the future of currency and payments. Square recently reported earnings and with them made the case for how it's moving further into digital e-commerce territory every day. Here are a few points from the call. First, despite starting with the smallest businesses, Square now counts the mid-market as its largest and fastest growing segment. The big worry I have for Shopify relative to Square is that its Shopify Plus business is not growing faster than its core business. That means it still does not understand the needs of its larger customers or is still finding product market fit there. If Square's mid-market business is growing faster than its SMB segment, that's a disturbing trend if I'm Shopify. Square reports that its biggest focuses are on omnichannel and moving up market. When most digital platforms talk about omnichannel, it's because they're focused on store experiences. For Square, that means more digital experiences because of where the company comes from. In the post-COVID reality, doesn't that mean that Square could be particularly well-suited to this curbside pickup world we are now living in? Square seems to me like it could be a full-stack provider to these retailers if Square increases its digital e-commerce presence and ecosystem. In my opinion, the biggest battle will be between Square and Stripe, however. When Stripe goes public, it will be an absolute monster of a company and could even rival the size of Shopify. Another reason to believe that these companies are in active competition? Square acquired the assets of Tidal, and Shopify is now partnering with Spotify to accelerate commerce and monetization of artists. Which makes me wonder, is it the payment companies that will be winners in the end? There is a strong case to be made that the hardest things are full-stack payment solutions and these omnichannel customer experiences. Stripe has payments, but not the other parts. Shopify has an e-commerce platform, but most of the omnichannel components are outsourced to partners. Square has both of these, but not a mid-market e-commerce offering. The question is not if these companies will start competing for the exact same business one day, but more of a matter of when. I'm forced to admit that Square is the closest to being Apple in this market, meaning they're the most vertically integrated provider out there. Our third story. What's the status of live stream commerce in the United States? With the holidays approaching, a few different companies are releasing updates on their live streaming efforts. If you're going to talk about live streaming, you have to talk about Taobao. In the lead up to Singles Day, the company sold $3 billion worth of products in under 12 hours. An extraordinary amount, even more so when you realize that these are the results of just two celebrity streamers. Pinterest recently launched its Pinterest TV offering, shoppable shows from its creators. While I can see some commerce happening here, I don't believe this is where the bulk of transactions will come from. As a non-video native platform, it could be a problem for Pinterest to be a big player in this market going forward. Saks and Macy's have also launched their own live stream events, but based on what I've seen, I don't expect them to go anywhere. For similar reasons, I'm not bullish on most live stream startups until they can prove they can either create or attract the top YouTube and TikTok celebrities. Facebook is the early leader in the U.S. and has been investing this opportunity the most, with plans to continue its events this fall. YouTube is planning a week-long live shopping event beginning November 15th as it starts to ramp up its own efforts. Let me capture what I think are the fundamental elements of live streaming at the highest level. First, you need a celebrity to attract attention. Your staff can get some training, but you will not get enough meaningful traffic unless you are able to pull from other audiences. For most people, this type of traction will come from the marketplaces as the average new brand will not be able to hire its own celebrity. Second, you need unique and interesting product. Again, what's the draw? 
something limited edition. Imagine a product or service that's noteworthy enough to talk about on the evening news and you have some idea what I'm getting at here. Third, you need practice, repetition, and a regular schedule. It's a new medium and not easy to get right overnight. Fourth, you need the ability to buy with one click directly from a video stream. If there is any ounce of friction, for example, it's a shopping episode and the viewer then must open a new window and fill out steps, you will lose the audience. Which companies do I think are the best positioned to take advantage of these opportunities? The reality is only two. YouTube and TikTok meet all the criteria. It's not that Facebook isn't investing here, but it's not where the younger generation is spending their time. In the short to medium term, I think most brands should be investing behind these platforms. The number one reason I favor these platforms is that it's easier to bring commerce to an engaged audience platform than it is to bring an audience to a high converting e-commerce platform. You might ask, why not Facebook? And the simple answer, both that Facebook's user demographics and trust are going in the wrong direction. Personally, I think step one in the United States would have to be something akin to Kim Kardashian partner with YouTube on the morning of Black Friday. That would attract an audience and allow the platform to develop personalities. In addition for the U.S. to approach the success of China, it needs to be a cultural phenomenon, not just another retail channel. And by the way, I'm covering this not because I believe it's a priority for everyone now, but because I think it will be a meaningful channel for early adopters within the next five years. All that said, live streaming in the United States is still not even in the first inning. To continue this baseball analogy, the pitcher is still warming up and fans are just being let into the stadium. And our last story. Retailer American Eagle Outfitters continues to acquire logistics capabilities. Should other retailers be paying attention? Retailers stood up and took notice as retailer American Eagle required mid-market logistics firms Quiet Logistics, which has historically serviced top apparel retailers such as Rulala in automated facility. The question on the mind of many retailers out there, should I be thinking about the same thing? Before we get into that, let's talk about the valuation of these three PLs. The consistent number of I'm hearing and seeing in acquisitions is something like two to three times revenue, which jives with Quiet Logistics revenue of over $100 million and a purchase price of $350 million. Given the automated nature of Quiet Logistics facilities, it's not surprising the company would come in at the high end of the two to three times revenue range. That's a good market comparable for both investors and other third-party logistics firms that might be looking for an exit. I think there are a few reasons that American Eagle went looking for more help. First, buying new facilities on its own is quite capital intensive. Instead, the retailer is taking a page out of Amazon's playbook to not only invest in a new capability, but also to add new services revenue to its business. The second main reason is to eliminate capacity and labor constraints as the company grows. The big worry is if American Eagle allows Quiet Logistics team enough freedom to continue its own growth. At about a $4 billion market cap and a little over $3 billion in revenue, the market seems to value American Eagle a little over one-to-one. One has to hope that American Eagle won't drag down Quiet's valuation due to association. The bigger question is, is this a start of a larger trend? To which I say, it's simply the continuation of a trend in large retailers to get better at logistics. Even before Amazon came on the scene, Walmart was known as one of the best logistics companies in the world. Amazon is one of the largest providers in the market right now as a top retailer. And Target has famously transformed its own supply chain to become more reliant on its stores, fueled by several of its own acquisitions of logistics startups. What type of retailers is this for? 
Well, I would say most retailers less than a billion dollars don't need to be looking in this direction because they don't need this level of scale and a new line of business is likely a distraction. As you start to approach five to $10 billion, it starts to make more sense. Those are at the lower end can look to startups in order to add key capabilities and operational efficiencies. Much larger retailers are instead looking at an entirely new line of business, much like Target's acquisition of Shipt, which, despite being in a different corner of supply chain, reminds me of this acquisition in that the acquirer will stay a big customer of the acquired company, but continue to offer services to other customers as well. Another thing this says, retail is extremely difficult in a market where the largest retailers like Target and Walmart are capturing most of the growth. Mid-market retailers need reinvention and perhaps diversification to improve their profitability. It's that time, friends, for our Investor Minute. We have five items on the menu today. First, in aggregator news, Elevate Brands raised $55 million and Berlin's Razor Group raised $125 million at a $1 billion valuation. Elevate has acquired third-party Amazon resellers. Razor Group, while flying a little bit under the radar of Thrasio, has nonetheless been praised for discipline execution, being very selective in who they acquire so they can take these brands off Amazon, which could serve them very well in the long term. Second, Walmart acquired technology provider BotMock, which advances its conversational commerce and voice commerce efforts. Driven by equal parts accessibility and convenience, voice commerce is an undeniable growing trend. So this is an interesting area for Walmart to keep tabs on, especially given its major competitor Amazon is essentially inventing the space with its Alexa products. Third, Autonomous delivery vehicle maker Neuro added $600 million to its bank account funded by Tiger Global Management. Notably, Google and Kroger were also investors. Something like this makes me wonder where Kroger is getting all the cash for its recent R&D and operation spending sprees. I know the company had formed a brand incubator, but wasn't aware that it was also investing in technology companies. Fourth, inclusive direct-to-consumer beauty retailer 13 Loon raised $3 million in funding from Fearless Fund a venture fund led by women of color. From a pure dollars and cents point of view, this is a historically underserved market in beauty, so there was a lot of room to run here. It also seems like a brand many people could get behind. And finally, subscription provider Milk Run raised $6 million in Series A funding to connect local consumers to weekly grocery staples provided by farmers. The idea of farm fresh groceries combined with subscriptions seems like a good one, but you might also question why consumers couldn't just buy from one of the more than 8,000 existing local farmers markets in the United States. That's all for this week. Till next time, Watsonians. Hi, I'm Rick Watson, CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting and host of the Watson Weekly Podcast, your essential e-commerce digest. Our show is produced by Citizen Racecar. Alex Brower is the producer and also wrote our theme music. The executive producer is David Hoffman. To hear new episodes of the show every Monday morning, subscribe now at rmwcommerce.com slash Watson Weekly and wherever you get your podcasts.